What's up, everyone? Welcome to Navigating DeFi, a podcast where we walk through DeFi projects and concepts in depth. This week, I'm joined again by Indigo, Zeus, and Glue from Olympus DAO, and we discuss pretty interesting topics around OM liquidity, range-bound stability, and some other liquidity strategies associated with OM and that are in the Olympus DAO pipeline. If you didn't watch the previous episode, I recommend checking that out. I'll make it available in the show notes in the description below. And without further ado, let's get into the episode. All right, everybody, we are back. We are back with Zeus, Indigo, and Glue. This is part two of a prior conversation. I think, honestly, we're going to skip intros and we're going to leave out all of the prior context. So if anybody wants any context, they'll just have to go go listen to episode one. Uh, we walked through a lot of the basics of OM. We walked through the roadmap for Olympus. We walked through the Bond-centric future, etc. But this episode is going to be all about liquidity and why ohm liquidity is important how the system can help um, improve ohm liquidity and why that's beneficial for for its users so i think let's start off with some of the uh, broader stuff around liquidity so we could set the stage a little bit and I, I was kind of reading through the olympus q1 report i believe it was and there was a, a whole section on on protocol on liquidity. A couple of the big moves were that the Ohm Frax LP was moved from Uniswap V2 to Uniswap V3. There was a new balancer pool composed of Ohm, ETH, and DAI. And also the bonds were primarily focused on LP uh, bonds. So I think Ohm DAI LP was the, the biggest uh, bond revenue for, for this quarter. So uh, can we start off by giving a general overview about uh, liquidity strategy uh, in the context of some of the things I just mentioned and why that's important for, for the system? Try to start and then everyone else. Yeah, there. don't go all at once. Cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I think as everyone knows, we, we have a lot of protocol on liquidity and deploying them in, in different avenues. Uh, it is important really for us to learn like how trades route and, and how the market functions. Um, the, the one I'll touch on that I think was pretty interesting was the, the move from V2 to V3 on Uniswap. Um, I think there's a lot of theory around how capital efficiency works and we wanted to see and understand how the market would react in that case. Um, in the other avenues, like the balancer pool you mentioned, um, the other the places we've moved to, I think there's a lot of like business development opportunity and just again learning how trades route around uh, these different liquidity pools. That I think is quite interesting. Um, it's all part of a broader strategy that we'll probably dive into later in this podcast about like how to be uh, more active with our protocol own liquidity and how to make it more useful. Because I think as the, you look at um, the website, the, the dashboards, you just it, it's obvious we own a lot of our own liquidity, but uh, bringing utility to that liquidity and uh, making it useful is a different story than just simply owning it. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, I, I, I think Olympus obviously owns more of its own liquidity probably than any other protocol in the entire space. So, I mean, if anybody's going to be on the forefront of, of this experimentation, it's going to be it's going to be Olympus. One of the other decisions that I'm kind of interested in is this uh, policy policy decision around bonds. So uh, the Q, Q1 report kind of mentions that uh, policy decided to shift bond capacities exclusively to LP bonds for, I think, like the last month or so. Um, and it mentions that in an environment of lower demand for Ohm, uh, those type of bonds help stabilize the Olympus market cap. Can we talk a little bit about how that actually plays out in, in practice? Yeah. 
Um, so if you look at the emissions that Ohm has, um, you know, there's kind of only one place that it really like has a tangible impact in whatever term of time. Um, so if you have supply go up by 5x over the course of a year um, and you don't increase the reserves in the system, um, all you really see is that the reserves backing will decrease by, you know, nine, or 80 percent. Right. So previously you were backed by five. Now you're backed by one. Um, but there's no like immediately felt impact of that. It's just whatever that, uh, you know, nominal that you could point to previously decreases as more tokens are distributed out to you. Um, so instead of one backed by five, you have five backed by one. Um, the place where you do feel it is on liquidity. Um, so if you start and you have, you know, 10% of supply held in liquidity pool and 90% in staking, and you have that same 5x increase in supply, um, what you'll see if you don't do anything over the course of that year is that 98% of supply becomes at staking and 2% becomes liquidity. Um, so you essentially have that liquidity pool diluted. Um, the issue there being that if you can kind of have two outcomes there. Um, you know, one of them is that network value grows by 5x, in which case you, you have 5x growth, but no change in liquidity. Um, or people go and they correct the liquidity against um, the supply growth, right? So they, they check it so that the like, growth is neutral. Um, but what you're going to see there is that to do so, they need to sell into the pool. They're going to take assets out of the pool. Um, and now you've actually shrunk. Um, so the, the liquidity bonds maintain consistency. Um, you're making sure that liquidity is growing at the same rate as supply so that um, over that year where supply grows by 5x, um, the supply and the liquidity pool also grows by 5x. And at the end of the year where you started with 10% in liquidity and 90% in staking, you end with 10% in liquidity and 90% in staking. Um, it's just that all the nominal numbers are five times bigger. Okay, that makes sense. And within that context, is there a level of demand at which it makes sense to uh, switch back to maybe focusing a little more on reserve bonds? Or is it something you kind of have to just play by ear and, and figure out as as the system evolves within a certain demand cycle, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a, a level of premium as well as, a, you know, a part of this thing that we're proposing right now. Um, you know, just kind of putting it under cause effect rules, right? So you have an influx in, in assets that go into liquidity and you respond to that by taking some of it into reserves. Um, so you kind of have like an ebb and flow relationship between the two. Gotcha. gotcha. Yeah. And one of the things we kind of touched on in the last podcast was this idea of um, the, the bond centric model and how that will bring sort of a new level of stability to Ohm itself. How how will that affect, I guess, the, the way in which the the policy team and the team in general and the system should think about liquidity, right? Like it, you, were, you just kind of mentioned uh, the premium and how that might uh, affect the way you make certain policy decisions. But in a world where uh, Ohm has a lot more stability, do we have uh, a different dynamic with regards to the premium? Like, will we ever see that same level of premium that we saw, you know, six months ago or whatever it was, or will it be a lot more stable and therefore maybe easier to reason about liquidity? 
Uh, I don't know the best way to frame that question, but does that make sense? <laughs> like, does stability affect the way in which that the policy team and, and everybody else can reason about liquidity within the system? I'd say yes. I think uh, Zeus probably chime in on, he has a good analogy for like, what does the bond century future mean? Also in relation to the range bound model, um, I think range stability helps influence stability. Um, and that does affect how the bonds will function. Um, they are complementary systems. So I think your, the first part of your question was, um, are, is how is it intertwined, the, the idea of um, the bond-centric future, and then how does the range range stability model like system work? Um, they are intertwined and they are complementary, but I'll let Zeus dive into like why that is the case. And there's there's a, a secondary question, as you said, will we return to our premium? Um, I don't know if the three of us will touch on that, but I think <laughs> you, you should listen to Zeus's answer. Thank you for the tee up. Um, <laughs> the the ranges add this level of like predictability into things, right? So you know you no longer really have this question like, man, this thing, you know, in a month could be anywhere, right? It could be 10x from here, it could be minus 90% from here. Um, who knows? In the same way that we're like with most things, like you actually don't have any idea like it could be either of those things um in this case you kind of have like okay you know most likely it's going to be between here and here and that that can be a pretty wide spread right so it's not like you're you're pinpointing an exact point um but it's this level of, of consistency and predictability um that you know should allow people to kind of guide their behavior better um there's no need to really take like knee-jerk reactions to things um, because you can kind of predict into the future, you know, what things are relatively going to look like. Um, the dynamic with the, those like secondary bond markets, um, and the, the own bonds is that, you know, let's say it does redevelop to a premium of four, um, but 75% of the supply goes into these bonds and converts from, you know, ohm today into ohm sometime tomorrow. Um, you've actually fallen back to like a premium of one on OM today. Um, so when it comes to, you know, the capital that the treasury has versus the liquid supply out there today that the treasury actually has a liability to, um, they're once again equal. So it creates a dynamic in which like, you know, premium can scale without the treasury scaling quite or with, with the treasury retaining like the market power that it has, um, you know, a lot easier than previously where it's like, okay, you're at a premium of four and, you know, liquid supply is also all out there. Um, and so, you know, it can get overwhelmed, um, you know, with a quarter of it. So it's, it's in a weaker position to defend anything. Um, so I, I look at it as like kind of turbocharging it. Yeah, Glue, you were way better at teeing up that question than I was. I definitely wasn't trying to imply that you should speculate on like a future premium or something like that. Um, I was mostly trying to to lead into a little bit in how uh, range uh, range bound stability can can you know help uh, give people a little bit more certainty. So thank you for for teeing that up. Um, before before we get into the range bound stability paper, there's a proposal that was made. Uh, last night by Yuzus about its OIP 93, which is this mint and sync proposal. And the summary is that 
Uh, we should enable minting into liquidity pools to reduce emissions and dilution and remove the opportunity cost of providing ohm liquidity. Uh, so can you give a little bit of background on that proposal and kind of what it does and how it works and how that plays into uh, the broader liquidity strategy around ohm? Yeah, it actually goes back to what I was saying like just a couple minutes ago. Um, you know, so the probably most crucial thing to just keep everything at a steady state um, being that supply and liquidity grows. Um, you know, to date, that's been accomplished through the LP bonds. Um, the issue that that poses is that you do pay some amount of discount out to a bonder. Um, you know, so those bond discounts are essentially like extra tokens that you're adding into supply um, to get that activity done. Um, you know, what we've seen in the past couple of months is, you know, as activity in, in crypto and in our market kind of dries up, um, those bond discounts have risen to the point that they're like pretty expensive. Um, the other thing is that we, we have this, you know, kind of plan for these, you know, ohm to ohm bonds um, where the, the utility of that really serves is less about the acquisition of those assets um, and more about uh, the like illiquidity and interest rate dynamic that they generate. Um, so or Tarun Chitra actually wrote a paper about this, kind of like the, the stabilizing effect of having those, those rates um, and, and then the bonds. Um, we can accomplish essentially the same thing um, through more direct means when it comes to acquiring the liquidity. Um, so that proposal was that essentially what we can do is let's say we would have you know bought bonds that have you know that added a thousand ohm into the liquidity pool um and right now you know we get someone to come and they you know take a thousand ohm they generally what happens is they take a thousand ohm they sell 500 of it they add 500 of ohm and whatever they got for selling 500 of ohm um and they give us that liquidity share and then we give them back 1,010. Um, instead, we can just mint 1,000 directly into the pool. Um, we can call this nifty sync function that exists on V2 pools. Um, and it'll just lock in that increase in you know, supply in the pool like directly. Um, and it distributes the ownership of that to all the LPs in the pool, of which currently we're the only one. So it just goes to us. Um, so it, it accomplishes the same thing, but there's no cost to it in the same way that right now there is. And we're, we're just kind of paying for when we don't need to be. Um, the, the other benefit of that being that right now there's this issue where like no one else can really provide liquidity for help. Um, and so because of that, um, you know, the protocol is the sole LB, which I don't think is a bad thing. Um, but at the same time, it becomes problem when you're dealing with, uh, you know, pairs except for what we consider like our base or reserve pairs, right? So I, I think that we're, I don't really consider it problematic that we're the only ones providing like ohm die liquidity or ohm frax liquidity. But, you know, it would be good if you have a project come along and they create a pair against ohm. And right now it's not super viable to do because you're just going to get diluted by the staking rewards and you're not going to like get compensated for that. Um, with the mint and sync like paradigm, um, now you would be. So, you know, you could have taken those ohm tokens and staked them 
and over the course of you know 10 days you would earn 10 ohm um, under this you add those ohm as liquidity and over the same 10 days you'd earn the same 10 ohm um, it's just going to go into the liquidity pool instead of you know rebasing in your staking wallet or increase the redemption value of your gm um, yeah so it, it solves that that liquidity dilemma as well as actually i guess it solves two liquidity dilemmas yeah, that makes sense. And I think the sync function is kind of key here because I, I believe I was reading some of the comments earlier on the on the proposal and somebody was uh, worried that this meant like selling Ohm on the market in order to add liquidity in some way. Uh, but the sync function actually works a little bit different than that. Um, can you like dive into the mechanism a little bit more just so there's some clarity there on what is actually happening here uh, with the underlying AMM? So sync is just a function that's on the V2 pools. Uh, so what it does is like there's some virtual reserves inside the liquidity pair for Uniswap or any Uni V2 uh, style pools. And what sync does is that it just updates the uh, the virtual reserves to the actual balances that are inside that pool. So when we're um, minting and syncing or minting into that pool, we call sync and it updates the actual pricing, uh, the virtual reserves to what's the actual balances in the pool. And that's really that simple. Like if you guys look at it, it's like literally just two lines in that function. It's very, very simple. And I think I've seen so, other people use that. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but other people have used this in the past as almost like a pseudo liquidity mining program, or am I wrong? Have you seen any examples of that? I could have, this no, sounds actually, really familiar. I, I actually don't know. That sounds pretty cool. Uh, if you have any information, let me know. Yeah, I, I actually don't know any other. Time. I don't know anyone who else, uh, anyone else who's used that function ever. Actually, it was very obscure when Zeus brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> Zeus is like digging into the V two contracts late at night. He finds yeah. this random function. <laughs> Literally, what happened, man? <laughs> I had heard about it before, but did not understand what the point of it was. And it kind of clicked. Although from their docs, it's not even how it's intended to be used. So, <laughs> well, you know, you gotta. Sometimes that's. I mean, that's how all smart contracts work. You just find something and use it, uh, regardless of if that's exactly how it was was designed. But going back to the proposal a little bit, um, there's kind of three options here. So one, of course, is like do not implement this at all. But one is to implement the mint and sync, and change the reward rate, which affects staking. And then there's one that says implement mint and sync, but no change to reward rate. Is there like a trade-off between these two that people should think about and consider? And is there like a, a preferred way forward for, for the system? Yeah, um, so essentially, you know, part of the, the change that has to occur there is that um, you're essentially like moving rewards from you know, staking into the liquidity pool. Um, so, you know, if you were to unstake and add liquidity, your rewards kind of follow you from staking to that liquidity pool. Um, and so, you know, the the rewards distributed out to to pools need to be, um, or to, to staking need to take into account LPs. Um, currently, it's based on the entire supply of OM. Um, and so you would have this effect where like the more supply goes into liquidity, actually the more missions for the total system there are um the issue with you know so it, it requires like changing the way that it's computed from using total supply onto just stake supply um 
the you know the the problem that that raises i guess is that um you know i think 20 percent there's like 20 percent less stake supply than there is total or 25 percent um so it represents just a decrease um in staking emissions um so you know i thought it was important to to raise and put in there um i i did put a little ps that i do think that you know we should just leave it as is um and maintain like the the framework that's in place um but you know i, I think it's definitely important to you know if if the aggregate feels that that needs to be corrected against um you know it's just kind of a that's pretty basic math equation to do so um so cool and and glue i know your browser has been giving you a hard time uh, so it's been hard for you to to hop in here but is there anything you wanted to add to the mint and sync discussion no, I was actually curious to toss around another question. I'm pseudo podcast hosting with you, Colton, because uh, I you. like to ask these big brains the questions. Are there, um, Indigo mentioned it was uh, Uniswap V2 that has this function. Like, what's the status of the other AMMs and their capability to do this? Because uh, as, as we discussed earlier, like, there's lots of different AMM opportunities, but I think not all of them have this mysterious function. Yeah, so any of the any of the Uni V2 based pools are able to do this. Um, the only one that I've seen that can't do it is uh, Balancer, which is obviously not a Uni V2 pool, but uh, they don't have a sync function. And then Uni V3 also does not because the way their LPs work is like completely different. And do we think that's a, a like a a trade-off maybe that we're like is is focusing on v2 uh something that is detrimental long term or is it just going to be a matter of this is one strategy and we'll have to find other strategies for v3 for balancer etc yeah that's how i see it um for like for balancer for example we could use a boosted pool which is ohm and geom inside a single uh like a single side of an lp and that pretty much gets the same result. So that's kind of the plan for uh, liquidity on balancer. And then for uni most pools are uni v2. So sync works very well there. And for uni v3, that is still to be determined, I believe. Yeah, I think, I mean, moving to uni v3 is probably going to be a little harder long term. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, just because I think most of like if you're going to be an LP on UDB3, it requires a little bit more active management. And I don't know if that's something that the DAO wants to, to fully embrace, or is there maybe like a framework in place for actually uh, utilizing V3 in a really efficient manner that's maybe more hands-off? We, we've been working with Gelato on nice. some of the active V3 management. And then of course, in Olympus Pro, uh, Gamma Strategies has been doing stuff. But I, I will say personally, as a V3 LP, um, it's one of the most painful experiences of my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair critique, and it's something that we've seen a lot of people talk about on Twitter as well. And when you have as as much liquidity as Ohm does and as Olympus owns, like trying to manage that really efficiently on V3 is a big problem in and of itself. And even though Gelato and, and Visor, for example, are really great products, um, you're you're starting to introduce just layered risk by by interacting with them. And this is no like knock to their team or anything. It's just a, a matter of general security practices that you wouldn't want to, um, you know, you wouldn't want to put all of your liquidity in Gelato, for example, just because you would like to diversify some of the risk there. And Indigo, you yep. mentioned something about frac swap, and we can definitely dive into that and how that plays into the Olympus strategy uh, if you want to take it from there. 
Yeah, sure. So FraxSwap is a um, it's a V2 based AMM that Frax made um, in order to implement their time weighted uh, automated market maker, so the TWAM. Um, so they Frax is using the TWAM for monetary policy, and we will we are considering using that pool as well for our own purposes. So um, that also has a sync function because it's mainly based on Uni V2. Um, but it has another a bunch of other nice properties that uh, of like being able to break orders into like extremely small, you know, long long term trades. I guess I don't know a good term for this, but you essentially um, dollar cost average over time into uh, an asset, and that's a pretty cool feature. And is this is a, a random question, but is Curve are any of the Curve V2 pools also being considered as an option at this time? Um, would that be something that's interesting, like being able to spin up a Curve V2 pool, get a gauge on there, get rewards there, and, and deepen liquidity on Curve, for example? Yes, I um, I believe there is a pool to be made on Curve, but um, it would not have the mint and sync functionality, unfortunately. So maybe Glue has more details there. But that's all I know. I, I actually um, haven't kept up with I, I don't actually understand curve all that well from a mechanics perspective but um we haven't been in active discussions on on it either so i'm, I'm very keen on this whole twam thing to be honest oh yeah no this twam is super cool honestly i think it's um i think it's the first one to the market too because the twam uh paper came out last year i think like early to mid last year and frac swap uh, Frax guys were the first ones to be able to actually make it in a gas efficient way. And that's not already <laughs> live, is it? Did I completely it miss that? Or is it? it is live? It is, yeah. Okay. So yeah, I it was. Uh, it's, it's well, no, not, everyone think, did. Everyone it's not did. like uh, all the Frax pairs. Did. There's not a bunch of pairs on it, right? It's, but it is yeah. live. So Frax didn't really advertise it, but like they launched it with the FPI. Um, so yeah, it's yeah. it's really interesting. I think it's actually like just as interesting as the FBI, but people aren't really paying attention. Well, airdrops tend more. to distract people from other yeah. stuff. So yeah, it was just unfortunate timing. I'll I'll have to dig into it because I yeah I think that could be could be super interesting for for Olympus. Um, all right, I think now is a good time to transition to this mysterious paper that found its found its way on Twitter. I don't know, like two weeks ago or something like that, whenever it was. But it's uh, Zeus's paper on on stabilizing currency through a protocol enforced range, or AKA I guess range bound stability. Here, uh, Zeus, you want to give a brief? Uh, first off, did you plan the release of this in the way that it happened? Um, and then second off, could you give a, a brief summary of kind of what it is, and we'll dive into it from there. Yeah. Um, in terms of if that was planned, like, not really. I just didn't really want to do, like, the whole fanfare thing around it. Um, so I just brought it into our Discord, and I was like, hey, like, here you go. Um, you know, anyone that wants to talk about it, like, I'm here to, to hang out and talk. Um, no, I don't know. I was just like, you know, people were asking me, like, okay, like, should we post this on the official Twitter? And I was like, eh, can we not? Um, and then people started like tweeting about it and I, I did kind of like meme a little bit and I was like my, my discord got access <laughs> and someone like posted this paper I don't know what it is and you know that was not me um, so I, I guess that was my, my playing into it 
Um, it, it did kind of turn into fanfare, which yeah. And the uh, legend of the wall was born. <laughs> was born yeah. from there. <laughs> um, it was fun, I guess. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean the the general gist. Um, I don't think it's actually all that complicated. So, um, actually, we I think we've kind of termed it like we're we're essentially building a wide range automated market maker. Um, so it's just a an AMM that is quoting a wide price range um so you know if you look at like um a uni v2 pool um that has you know the the 0.3 percent fee essentially you're quoting a price with a, a spread of 0.6 percent right so if you're to buy in one direction and then sell in the other direction um you're gonna get a price that's like 0.6 percent different um Essentially here, you just have the same dynamic, but instead of 0.6, it's like 60. Um, so you have this wide range and spread between um, the bid and the ask that the protocol are, are offering. Um, but those bids and asks are very large um, with the intent of essentially allowing volatility to happen within the range. Um, you know, the market can kind of do whatever it wants in there. That's its prerogative. Um, but once it gets to those walls, um, the, the bid or the ask, and once it gets close, um, you have the protocol step in and add a bunch of liquidity in the other direction. Um, and really what you're trying to do is just moderate the movement of the market um, and add, you know, kind of like force consensus on the direction that things move. Um, so, you know, that, that spread is quoted around a moving average. Um, and you're essentially just saying, okay, you know, if you are 25% below um, some length MA, then I'm going to stop you in tracks. I'm going to, you know, provide a bunch of bids. Um, and with the, with the intent of just, you know, you can either try to overwhelm me in the short term. And if there's enough consensus around that and enough supply buys into it, then, uh, you know, that's going to happen. Um, you know, the, the better route there, um, and you know what I would consider the more likely one, because if you're sitting above that, like, you know, there's not a ton of incentive, um, to break it unless there's a bunch of like liquidations or liquidations below there. Um, and even then, you know, it comes down to how big that wall is and how big those liquidations are. Um, and that's another thing that we're, we're trying to address, but, um, that you know you can just kind of wait that ma is going to trail down below you and or like after you um and kind of more room opens up but you're just forcing these things to happen slowly over time um and you just create you know kind of optimal behavior for the market so you know you're in that position that's kind of the lowest risk point that you would allocate in um and then you know same goes on the top of the range um now you're sitting below this giant cell wall um protocols saying hey you can't appreciate more right now um if you want to wait some time or you know add 15 percent to my treasury so that i can like de-risk in the future um and you know the the optimal you know route of behavior is that people you know start selling that and you know stop bidding it and you move back away from the wall um and you just sit within that range um you know essentially just everything has to happen over a longer period of time um and you know be
because of that, it has to be much more consensus driven what you're doing. You know, it doesn't lend itself to like knee jerk reactions in one direction or the other, unless there's like a ton of volume behind them. Yeah. And, and to clarify for everybody listening, this is different than from, from what Ichi recently did where they, however, however they were doing it, they were just kind of manipulating the LP for up only. Um, this is very different from that where it's all about uh, creating uh, basically a market that that's, dampening the volatility of ohm within a pretty broad range like you mentioned it's very similar to how actually like stable coins need a bunch of liquidity around the peg um and if you break that peg obviously there's a little bit of price discovery and then it has to reestablish itself um and then I, the paper kind of mentions a similar dynamic here where there there are these walls but that doesn't mean these walls are kind of unbreakable to the downside or to the upside um, and if they do break the system allows for price discovery and then walls are sort of re-established to dampen volatility in that given range is that is that correct yeah cool yeah i think one of the biggest things being like yeah that, that wall just comes back um as a matter of time so there, there's never really like an event of like, oh, the wall broke and now it's all over, better flee. Um, that's actually what you saw with that other project is, you know, they borrowed all the money to to build their wall. Um, and then they had it trailing like percents below price and like rising every time price rose. Um, and it just got to the point that like, you know, eventually you can't defend that anymore. And the second that that wall breaks, um, you know, you borrowed all that money, so now you got to get it back if you're going to, like, continue on. Um, but that's a lot of money to get back. Um, and so, you know, the rational actor looks and says, oh, it's all over, and, you know, it's all over. Yeah, I mean, that, that story is pretty crazy. Um, we don't have to dive into it. It kind of took over all yeah. of the Twitter for, for a whole week. But um, yes. I, think, I think one of the big interesting philosophical points here that was kind of underlying this paper is this idea about how to use treasury assets uh, effectively. You know, and one of the points that, that you brought up in the paper was that uh, while liquidity mining is, or, or like doing liquidity mining with the, the reserve die that's available, for example, while that's interesting, it could eventually lend itself to behavior that puts the system more at risk. And it should, those funds should instead be used to actually help uh, support stability in the system in, instead. Um, is that a conversation that's been happening for a long time? Because I do think like there are some people that are at odds about this, right? And I think uh, maybe there was another project, we, we don't have to name it, I think we'll all know who it is, that kind of leaned into this, uh, I don't know, hedge fund VC style narrative and Olympus never wanted to do that. Um, but some people are like, oh my God, we have all these assets just sitting there idle. Like, why don't we just ape them into yield farms and start generating crazy revenue? Um, and your point was kind of like, well, that's a, a, a viable strategy to an extent. It can't be can't be the only strategy. Um, so is that like a an important point of, of all of this, being able to use those treasury assets in a way that's more effective than just earning some, you know, small yield on them? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think there's kind of two things. Um, one is that, you know, the the utilization of treasury has always been not really the generation of yield as much as deployment into our own market. Um, so, you know, <laughs> I always kind of crack up if, if the goal is like take a treasury and like use it to, to yield farm or do whatever and that like the odds that you can do that better than individuals seem slim under the, the structure. 
Um, and it's like, if you could do that profitably on your own, like, why not just do it on your own? Like, why not raise from private LPs? And like, you know, if you can make money, then you're just going to make money. Like, you know, it doesn't really make any sense to do it under this kind of structure. Um, so <laughs> that always kind of, I find funny. Um, the, the other one is just like, you know, I think that one of the big things that we need to do is we need to make OM not irrelevant, but, um, you know, not a short, like, not a perpetual fixation point, if, if that makes sense. Like, I'll, I'll expand, but I'm trying to figure out the right way of saying that. Um, you know, I, I think that the system needs to kind of be on a, a steady state in which we can focus on building things around it and not um, focus on, you know, it, it persisting day to day, you know. And I, I think that's really hard to do if you're trying to manage these active strategies with the treasury, right? You're just going to consume a ton of mindshare around, you know, um, what strategies are we running? You know, could we be making more in this pool than that pool? Like, you know, are we harvesting our yield? Like, you know, how did the treasury perform this month versus last month? You know, it's just a massive, like, um, shelling point of, of attention that, like, you know, I, I think is super detractive from from what we're actually trying to accomplish and I think would end up, you know, diminishing us to a significant degree. Um, so, you know, kind of two degrees of like, like <laughs> there's no point um, and it's actively harmful. Um, so, you know, we've actually been because, yeah, this has been a, a conversation for, for like a long time. Um, I don't know if one of you guys want to, want to talk yeah. about. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm so I've, I, I think. Uh, so funny enough, if you guys haven't been in off topic recently, whenever this post, you should get back in there and, and check it out. But the, the discussion yesterday um, was quite fun in, in this regard. I think uh, I'm, I'm actually actively against this whole treasury management concept. Um, I'm a member of the DAO, of course, but like I, I think it's like as you said, it, it takes up too much brain power for something that reaps so little reward. Like yeah, it, it's helpful. It's good to be sustainable, which which is the point of the protocol. But actively <laughs> pursuing yield is better done as an individual. You you can do that if you want to just farm stables on your own. Um, the comment you were making there, being less uh, time sensitive, I think is the key. And and one of the comments made last night was, you want to be confident that that ohm will be there tomorrow if you're going to build on top of it and i think that that is really what we provide to the to the network of defi like you can look at the broader market and and try to build on top of other tokens but like can you truly be confident that they'll be around for the long haul and i think um that was what was hinted that what zeus is hinting at at the tail end of um his comment there and if you listen to actually the recent bankless uh with vitalik and and bitcoin maximalism I think the key to any good ecosystem is that you are going to be around for the long haul. People can be confident you're there. Um, and right now, one of the big issues with crypto is like the majority of cryptos are, are there on, under social consensus. They're around because people believe they'll be around um, until maybe one day they stop being around. Um, and that, that's, uh, that's fundamentally not how OM will work. Yeah, that makes sense. And it also makes sense to lean into simplicity here. And I think in pretty much always being able to focus on uh, making sure that there's enough ohm liquidity and making sure that there are ways to uh, like 
guarantee that ohm is not going to be this extremely volatile uh, sort of currency in the long term um, it is beneficial to, to the system. So we've kind of touched on range bound stability and how some of these assets will be used. But when treasury assets are not being used in the own market, sort of what will they be doing? Will they be sitting idle? Will they just not be used at all? What is, what is the plan for, for unused assets in, in the treasury? I can, I can take this, uh, the beginning of this. Um, so the assets that we have right now, as you said, and, um, as glue said, like we're really against the active management. So like the alternative would be, well, you don't want the assets to just completely sit there. So you do want some kind of, uh, farming or, you know, yield generation on those assets. So the idea is just to keep it as simple as possible. Right. And so, um, one of the ideas we have is to set our reserves in like our main reserves will be put into a balancer pool. And a really awesome feature of the balancer pools is that they have this thing called the boosted pool, which lets you um, allocate a majority of what's inside the, the uh, balancer portfolio to a lending market or another yield generating um, location. Right. So, for us, what it would look like is we have this uh, this variety and like an index of stables that is like an, a liquidity pool itself, but ninety percent of those assets is actually getting allocated to Fuse. So, and we would probably have our own Fuse pool if I'm not mistaken. I think Zeus has better details on this, but um, that way, there's no questions of where the the yield is coming from. There's no treasury management discussions for anyone who wants to like borrow our assets, they just go to that place and it keeps it simple on our side. We have absolutely nothing to worry about there, you know, as far as like where where things could go. People come to us instead. Yeah, I kind of see it as we, we get, you know, I think more of the upside of farming than we spend figuring out where to farm, if that makes sense. Um, so we're not going to earn... We wouldn't earn quite as much as if we were to go allocate into all those positions ourselves, but we actually, or we are, we at the same time take on a lot less of the risk of being in those positions as well as not having to really figure out where to go and in what size, you know, we leave that to third parties and we just share in the upside that they get. Yeah. And I honestly think, you know, giving, you know, the ability to do active yield farming with stable coins, especially with the way that funds tend to flow in this space, to, to be able to do that at scale with the Olympus treasury within the current governance structure would be like impossible. Because <laughs> by the time you kind of like came up with the strategy, maybe got a proposal passed, actually pulled the trigger on moving the money, the yield would already be dried up and you'd have to be like figuring out the next farm. And so the ability to put it in a balancer pool that's leveraging fuse on the back end sounds really appealing. And I, I'm wondering, like, what are, are there any risks that are associated with that that are easy for people to reason about? Is it relatively risk-free because collateral is basically stable coins in, in this case where people are borrowing? Or what are people going to be able to borrow against, I guess, is the question. Because recently we saw, again, I hate to bring up this Ichi project, but we saw basically all of the collateral go basically to zero. And so they pretty much defaulted on a massive position is this something that uh there will have to be a framework for within uh this new like you know balancer view setup or how will that work yeah i mean i think that default risk is really a matter of parameterization 
um if you look at kind of like um fuse pools that like fuse pools are actually really interesting when it comes to like collateralized lending markets um because they're like these micro um microcosms or you know like specific examples of how a lending market can play out um so if you look at like compound and ave um you know like the the big whales in the the lending game um they've never had any period of like under collateralization versus like you know several or at least one fuse pool has had that um because you know they're, they're kind of the same market as a compound market but with different parameters um, I think it really just comes down to what the parameters are. Um, so essentially, the the more risk you allow to accrue into that pool, um, the more yield is going to accrue to the lenders. Um, but you know they're, they're very you know tit for tat, right? So the more <laughs> the more yield you're earning, the more risk you're taking on. Um, you know, I, I think it really comes down to like if we have parameters that are not overly risk-taking so if we you know remain conservative in the way that we manage those pools then um you know we we should be relatively safe from that there's actually an idea that i, I don't think we actually do um but I, I think that it's a cool thought experiment of um you know if you create a second token with like ave token like characteristics um where you know essentially like there's this structure with Aave, the token, um, with this safety module that they have, that, you know, the safety module um, is meant to, uh, you know, backstop the lending market and provide liquidity um, back into the pool if there's a shortfall. So let's say that the pool is short $10 million. Um, you know, the, the safety module will sell $10 million worth of Aave, get $10 million worth of whatever is missing and put it back. And now all the lenders are safe. Um, you know, one of the, the side effects of that, and I think the most impactful one, is that Aave token holders get kind of nuked in this equation. Um, it's expensive for them. And so the incentive is always aligned that they're not losing money in that market. Um, you know, I, I think that we don't really need a separate token for that because, you know, the, the well-being of those treasury assets are, are very intertwined with the well-being of home holders. Um, so that incentive alignment remains there even on ohm. Um, but you know that that incentive, I think, is generally like you know sizable enough that you're gonna keep that uh, you know market healthily parameterized. Um, you know, I'm hoping that you know if we do this, we can lean on like gauntlet or other uh, what's it called? Um, like analytics groups um, where you know they they generally step in and they model out what the current parameters look like, what kind of risks they're taking on and in you know, tail end scenarios and they say, hey, you know, you might want to change this to that. Um, yeah, but at the end of the day, you know, if we're parameterizing well, um, you know, one of the interesting things with fuse pools is that the one parameterizing it generally has no exposure to the downside of the pool. Um, and so they're a lot more willing to just go out onto the risk curve and collect their premia through the, the reserve fee than, you know, um, the lenders in the pool might be. Right. And yeah, that, that's really the point I wanted to drive home here is that like fuse pools definitely have a lot of flexibility, flexibility, and this is for better and for worse, like, and in the worst situations, bad stuff can happen, but it's not like Olympus is going to be adding the, the long tail of crypto assets as collateral options with like unfavorable collateral ratios. And then, uh, you know, using TWAPs for all the, the oracles underneath and 
adding all of this like weird systemic risk that could cause uh, defaults to happen. So, I mean, I, I think that's like the coolest feature about, about Fuse is that you have all of this flexibility and you can kind of create pools that are as safe as you need them to be um, to cater to, to your particular use case. And is there any, is there any potential to use like ERC 4626 in any of this, which is like the plugin that allows yield bearing assets to be utilized in the fuse pool without forfeiting any of the rewards. Has that been a conversation that come up or are we too, too early for that? Uh, yeah, 4626 on the plugin system is definitely going to be used. Um, there's some uh, interesting dynamics with um, convex assets being uh, deposited into the pools or so like it's, it's, this is past my, my specialty, though. Maybe Zeus has a better idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the plugins are very cool in that essentially, like, um, we can provide something similar to what Abracadabra um, can or at least used to, um, where, you know, there, there's definitely demand out there for people to, you know, lever up against stablecoin positions. Um, so, you know, you're in the frax three curve pool and you know you want to add uh you know size to that pool um you know so you would be able to come to this pool if we have like plugins enabled through 4626 um with that pool as a collateral um you could deposit into that frax three curve pool um and then into convex you would you know deposit that as collateral into our pool you could add, borrow more frax um and then add to that pool and you know loop up some amount of leverage um you know so it, the responsibility is on us that we're making sure that you're not taking on too much leverage that we are at risk um but given that you're not essentially you know um if you're earning 12 percent there then you're going to hike up the interest rates so that we're earning six percent um you're getting an extra six percent out of you know everything that you deposited um and you know everyone kind of walks home happy um like I think that the the plugins are like a very cool addition that they did to to Fuse. Big fan. And Glue, do you have any? I feel like you have a co-host question here uh, that you may be curious about. So, so if you have one, <laughs> feel free to ask it. Um, no, I wanted to so regarding forty six twenty six and 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 the tribe um, we're working on. It, it, the proposals are public. Um, we're working on. I think today launching Tribe Turbo. So just wanted to plug that in. Um, will be participating in some format of 4626 in that sense. But I don't have a direct tie into the current liquidity conversation. Um, well, can somebody tell me about Bofides, the Greek god? No, I, can, I can tell you maybe about the, uh, the lore behind them first. Well, I mean, like, I mean, it's like a, you know, project name, I guess. But, you know, we, we, we like to dig through ancient Greek history and, you know, mythology. Um, you know, and everyone knows about Hercules, right? Um, you know, great or great Greek hero. Um, you know, kind of probably one of the most known Greek figures um, in their mythology. And you know, he had this like heel that you know he was like indestructible except for his heel, where um, you know that Achilles tendon you know takes him out. Um, but no one really knows about Bofides. Um, Bofides was like a similarly heralded character. Um, you know, the only thing is that instead of uh, his weakness being, in the case of Achilles, his Achilles heel, um, for Bofides, it was Bofides nuts. Um, 
but I'm going to let you take it from there, Indigo. Thank you. Uh, it was very informative. <laughs> so, uh, Buffeties has been our um, internal code name for a full system rewrite that we've been working on. God, I'm still fucking laughing. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> yeah, so it's a full system rewrite that... Um, Speaking on the way well, you brought up 4626, one of the um, <clears throat> one of the big things that I wanted to do was to make uh, SOM and GOM and OM like all the staking into like 4626, uh, you know, pathways between those three. So that's one of the big improvements. Another one is that um, the system will be much more simplified and it lets us actually become like this more modular system, which allows us to make this uh, range stability model and everything on top. But also, ultimately, we're going to try to become a cross-chain currency using a layer zero. So that's a, yeah, it's just, just an internal code name that uh, we're working with. Yeah, beautiful. And it has really amazing, Lauren, I, I appreciate you taking the time to really walk us through that, Zeus. That was, I, I think, really important for people to understand uh, the the uh, nobility of this type of work, <laughs> this type of work. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I'm all about both of you. Appreciate them. Yeah. I mean, I, I know you are well-versed in Greek history, so I'm glad you took us down that, that little detour. And so uh, circling back to both of these a little bit, what is... Uh, so what does the timeline for this look like, Indigo? Is there like, um, is this something that's going to be a really easy process or is there going to have to be some sort of like migration that users have to be aware of? Uh, you know, anything that you can share on that, I think people would be would be interested. I won't say the words, but uh, it may require a somewhat of a movement from one token to another. Um, so yes, <laughs> to answer your question. But- okay. This, um, the, the idea of this whole, um, you know, we're, we're likely going to have to do a migration of SOM or GM again. Um, but this, the whole plan with this rewrite is that it will be very likely the last one we'll have to do just because the architecture that we're going to use now is going to be much more modular and allow us to upgrade without having to do these like huge token migrations again. So that's, and- uh, that's one of the huge goals of this is we all know how painful those are. Yeah, and do you think this will be like this modularity will make like the future of geom governance a lot easier? I mean, because one of the things that uh, I know Olympus has on the roadmap is switching fully to on-chain governance, and that's pretty hard to do if you don't have a modular system. So, is this going to make quality of life a lot easier for for the governance side? Oh yeah, hundred percent. And that's actually one of the big reasons is that um, this this rewrite allows us to have like a really strong foundation to allow for you know the on-chain governance, the range model. Um, the ohm bonds that will come out soon and then all the you know the intertwining of all those three systems um ultimately like uh to bring all the topics we brought to uh we talked about like the whole idea is to like really simplify the system right and to kind of have like this predictable algorithmically driven um contract system that like people can actually like there's not much human interaction going in there and what is it's all through governance on chain so that it's very predictable it's like exactly what you want out of an asset that uh you plan to hold right you don't want something that's changing all the time and that you want predictability and like what you'll see today or today tomorrow and like in a year from now with the ohm bonds uh i see that as like long-term stability and i see the range the range model is like a short to midterm stability and 
with a governance being able to like tie all those things together from the community itself. And Zeus, it looked like you wanted to tack on something there. So go ahead. Yeah, I think really important thing to note. Um, <laughs> we we have learned from each migration. This is this would be number three. Um, you know, learned great lessons from each one. Um, so this one would be completely asynchronous. Um, you know, there, there's a benefit in the fact that um, no one holds Geom today. Or like most people hold Geom, um, so there's not really anything to notice. Um, and essentially, the way that that would work is that you just like when you stake in, you would just go into the new one instead of the old one. Um, for everything else, you wouldn't really notice. Um, one of the things that made the last one a pain was changing the the Ohm token because um, that's where all the liquidity lives. So that wouldn't be the case here, um, which means that like the the surface area of change is you know significantly diminished. Um, there wouldn't be any real like new educational hurdle to get through. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm just a <laughs> very like conscientious of making it clear <laughs> that it would not be a real event. Yeah, it should have been clear there. Yeah, there's no ohm token change. So like none of the oracles or the pools have to be changed. It's literally just SOM and geom. Uh, but yeah, it, it should be extremely simple for users. Nice. So this will be the third and final migration until the fourth one and the fifth one and the potential yeah, sixth one. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure you will be excited about that. Uh, amazing. I mean, we touched on a lot of a lot of cool stuff throughout this. Is there anything else that we want to touch on before we before we wrap it up? We touched on both of these. That's all I yeah, I mean, we could definitely end it on both of these. Well, hopefully this conversation was informative to everybody listening. Like I mentioned at the beginning, if you made it this far up, this was an extension of the previous conversation that we had about a month ago. Uh, a lot of stuff has evolved and, and changed since then. So I definitely recommend listening to part one of this podcast and then part two. Um, you, you literally get two hours of our amazing uh, voices and insights and everything you'd ever want to learn about Olympus. So thanks again, guys, for, for coming on. I enjoyed it. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you.